What do you think about when you think about God? For many of us, the unavoidable reality is that any conversation about God is itself a conversation about the goodness of God. Is he good? Is he benevolent? Is he loving? Is he trustworthy? Is he someone or something that we can give our lives to, since that's what it seems like it's demanding? Is he good? And at the end of the day, this conversation almost always comes down to the issue of hell. Can God be good if hell exists? Specifically, if hell exists in the way that we tend to think about it, as a place for billions of people who don't agree with God's laws and rules to go, where they will be tortured and tormented forever. Now, if that's true, if that's the reality, if that's the actual doctrine that's being taught, then it makes sense that God's goodness would be called into question. How would you be good and also a sadist? My name is Johnny Morrison, and you're listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today's episode, we're continuing our conversation about hell, but before we jump into that with Josh, we need to unpack some of the ideas from last week. Just re-remember them so we can do this well. We explored how we have certain caricatures about God and hell that are not rooted in his story. So we have these images that are built around false ideas or movies or television or stories that other people have told us, but they're not actually grounded in the reality of God's story, the Bible. And so they're false. They're false caricatures and then blow up our perception of hell and God's goodness. Second, we need to ground our conversation about hell in reality. We shouldn't separate theology from the practicality of our world. And specifically, we need to ground our conversation about hell in the reality of human suffering, recognizing that suffering is real and that people who suffer need justice. And since hell is a form of judgment, it is deeply connected to justice, like jail systems are connected to those who do wrong. So theology has to be connected to reality. Third, we looked at how all of this, this whole entire conversation about God, about hell, about you and I, and even about justice, need to be understood within the context of a larger narrative. All of these pieces find themselves within a story. And if we miss the story, this unified whole, then we'll miss how these different pieces make sense. It's easy if we dive into the story right in the middle, take one small piece of that and then remove it from the narrative to be confused, to be angry, or even to hate the author. It's missing the whole point for one small piece. We need to put that piece back in the larger narrative to understand the entire thing. And when we do that, well, then we can begin to do the fourth thing, which is understand who God is and who we are, which is chiefly that God and us are characters in this story. And the way that we interact with this character, God, the things that we see about him, the things that we learn about him, remind us over and over and over again that he is actually good. Not evil, not malevolent, not malicious, but good. And so if that's true, if his character in this story, well then maybe we can 
hold our biases about him and hell in tension while we continue to explore the narrative for the sake of understanding this issue. But which also means that we need to understand something about ourselves, that in the story, well, the people who aren't always good, or the characters who aren't always good, isn't God. More often than not, it's us. Today, though, we're going to dive in further and actually talk about hell and the goodness of God, continuing our talk with Josh Butler. And what he's going to do is unpack for us four paradigms that we need to have shifted in order to properly see and understand hell. The first one is just first thing we have to do is zoom out and go, what's the overarching storyline that this makes sense in, you know? And most of us today, I think, uh, have the storyline wrong. <laughs> I, I found that if you ask many folks, kind of the popular perception or character out there is that the story goes, um, right now I live on earth, one day I'm going to die, and when I die, God's either going to send me up to heaven or down to hell. And so it's sort of the storyline, what I would call like the earth now, heaven, hell later story, you know, mm-hmm. and um, there's a number of problems with that. But uh, the biggest one, as I say, is that's not how scripture talks about heaven, earth, and hell, like their relationship. Um, use the example in the book, there's a experiment you can do if you go to like Bible Gateway, for example, and uh, say use the NIV or some modern translation and type in uh, heaven, hell and hit search and it'll show you how many times heaven and hell appear together in scripture throughout scripture. And it surprises many people to learn like zero. Like there, there are no times that heaven and hell appear together as kind of this counterpart pair in the biblical story. Um, but I do believe earth has a counterpart in scripture and it's, it's heaven, you know, so you can do the same experiment and type in the words heaven, earth and hit search. And there's, Roughly, depending on which translation you use, the answer is roughly 200 times that heaven and earth show up. If you're curious, the exact count is 158 times in the NIV, 188 counts in the ESV, and 170 in the NASB. So there's a sense, I think, in Scripture that uh, God creates a good heavens and a good earth. Uh, Heaven and earth are then torn apart by the destructive power of our sin. Our sin kind of unleashes destruction in the world. Um, and so there's a sense of separation of heaven as being sort of the dwelling place of God, not just sort of up in the cloud somewhere, um, but, but more the sense of our distancing of the world from our, our creator, you know. Um, and yet God is sovereign and is interactive from heaven, so all things together. So heaven and earth are created good, torn by sin, but they're destined for reconciliation. So just to be clear on something, what Josh is saying is that if we look at Genesis 1 in the beginning of the creation story, which is the beginning of the story, we see that God creates earth and heaven. And these are actually in the moment a unified space that are meant to belong together. Then these spaces get torn apart by sin, sin, well, we'll see this in a second, brought into the world, and that God is choosing to try and reconcile them back together, which becomes the entire narrative plot of the story. Well, what is absent from that moment? Uh, Well, hell is actually absent in the beginning. And I think the question then becomes, though, well, if God's going to reconcile heaven and earth, what is it they need to be reconciled from? Hmm. And this is where I believe the logic of hell starts to arise. You look at the historic Christian theology, and the the bigger sense here is that... um, yeah, God is going to reconcile heaven and earth from sin, you know, and sin and death and hell and kind of the destructive power that um, our rebellion is unleashed in the world. And 
this becomes a story driven by God's goodness. God's on a, uh, the one way we could say it is God's on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. Or the even better way to say what Josh is saying is... God's on a mission to get the hell out of earth. It is so vital that we understand what Josh is saying. See, we often think about the biblical narrative and about God's mission as to rescue us from earth or to send people away from earth to hell. And then earth and all that it is just kind of goes away. But that is not the story. Instead, the story is that earth is a good place that's been overrun by the power of hell. And God is on a mission to rescue us and this world from the power of hell. Now, the really important question that we have to answer is where does the power of hell in our world come from? So the big idea would be, yeah, like hell makes its way into the world through us. And there's a key passage in James where he talks about this idea where he talks about how, you know, he's like, imagine a forest and how even a great forest can be set on flame, set aflame by just a little small spark. You know, same with our words, like the power of the tongue. It can, basically our tongue is small, but our words are, you know, sinful words or whatever can uh, burn down our lives, can burn down our friends. And, uh, but he goes on to say, and when it does, uh, it itself is set on fire by the power of hell. Mm. Gehenna is the word he uses there. And so <clears throat> what James is saying, you know, is, um, dude, our sin can unleash destruction in God's good world. And when it does, it, it's actually set on fire by hell itself. Like the way that hell makes its way into the world is through us. Maybe the best place to see this is in Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, where he locates the deeper and more intrinsic issue within the heart. So he would say, you have heard that you shouldn't murder, which is true, you shouldn't murder. But I say to you that if you have even hated within your own heart, well, then you're on the same road to murder. And so what Jesus is doing is he's backing up the issue all the way to the heart. And he's saying there's actually a spark issue inside of us that has the power to set the whole thing aflame, even if we never actually go and commit the further act. All of us, at one level, want justice in the world. We want to remove the evil that is in our world. But Jesus wants it even more. And so he's going to come and remove the power of hell, both institutionally, systemically, naturally, culturally. But if he really wants to remove the power, then he needs to dig all the way into our hearts where the seed or the spark exists. Greed, lust, pride, you name it. Hell makes its way into the world through us. You better This is the first paradigm shift that we need to go through. We need to understand that the story is not about God trying to get us out of earth and into heaven or hell, but that he is in fact trying to reconcile heaven and earth and get the power of hell out of earth and out of us. And then we also need to see that the power of hell comes into the world through us both in these large and massive gestures that create systemic injustices, but that even more so, that is rooted in a heart issue, a spark that exists within us, that Jesus is committed because he is so committed to justice and getting this world right, that he is going to remove that from inside of us. Go 
then But first you gotta listen to me Tell the truth, I promise you, this world the practical question for us at this point is, do we want Jesus to remove that? Or as Josh will say in his book, do we want to be healed? Now, this leads us into the second major paradigm shift which is about the location of hell. Where is hell located? Because we often think about it being some underground chamber. But that's not the way the story presents it. And that also might seem like a strange paradigm shift to have to go through. But as Josh will explain, it matters a lot. <laughs> what we mean by that is, is this. Jesus' primary word uh, used for hell is Gehenna. And if we go into the Old Testament and trying to understand what, what was Gehenna. So Jesus is, you know, Jesus is saying Gehenna is basically his word for hell. What was Gehenna? It was actually a place that was well known uh, to Israel. And it was this place in the Old Testament that was infamous for, uh, man, for child sacrifice. It was the place that shows up regularly where people would leave Jerusalem, go outside the city and set up these high places, these altars, these idols to other gods. And uh, Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, as it's often called, um, was the place where they slaughtered their children to these, mm. these other gods. And in the Old Testament, God gets livid about it. He gets angry, you know, like uh, rightly so, you know. <laughs> and so it's this place associated with, ultimately for the prophets, it's almost like this most extreme example that the prophets becomes a symbol of how far off Israel has gone, you know, how far off the wagon they fall. And like, and it becomes a symbol for Israel's idolatry and injustice, you know, idolatry kind of her rebellion against God and injustice for um, cruelty towards one another. Josh writes in his book, quote, the Valley of Hinnom was the woodshed out back where Israel beat God's children. End quote. I think this statement helps to illustrate what it is that Josh is saying, that the place called Gienna, or the Valley of Hinnom, was a place of idolatry and a place of injustice. And it's helpful for us to understand that in the biblical narrative, those two things always go together. But the hope in, in the Old Testament is that God's a good king, and though we've kind of distanced ourselves from him, God's going to return. He's going to come back. He's going to redeem Jerusalem. He's going to establish his kingdom. You know, it'll be his capital. He's going to establish his kingdom there. And he's going to kick the rebellion, you know, all the kind of destructive rebellion that refuses his reign. <clears throat> he's going to kick the rebellion outside the city, outside the kingdom, into Gehenna, kind of the place where the rebellion sort of seemed to begin, you know? So... Okay. So here it's going like the location is not underground in here. It's, it's actually outside the city. Now, this idea of the location of hell and its historical context is helpful for a couple of reasons. And the first one is that to quote Josh again, quote, the Valley of Hinnom is cruel, not because of the good and faithful husband, but because of the cheap and adulterous affair and the abusive and vindictive lovers we give ourselves to. Hell's internal logic is cruel not because of God, 
but because of his absence in the attainment of idolatrous illusions, end quote. So the notion is, is that Guiana or hell, this place outside of the city, it is terrible because of us. Because it is full of all of our attempts to fulfill our own vices, to worship our own gods, and to wield power for our own agendas. The power of hell is not God's, and it's actually ours. Now, the second reason the location of Guiana is important is that we see that it is outside of the city, which also explains to us why hell is outside. And it is because the things that are happening inside of hell or inside of Guiana are the things that actually wage war on what is good, what is right, and what is just. The things that will wage war on God's city. And so for God's city to be protected, for the places of flourishing and life and thriving to be protected, then the injustice must be removed and pushed outside of the city to a place like Guiana, where they originated in the first place. Now, finally, the thing that this does is help us to reconfigure what it is that God is doing. God wants to rescue his city. That's the whole narrative of the Bible, is that God is going to rescue the world and reconcile it with himself. But that means that hell needs to be pushed out. The power of Gana needs to be cast outside of the city. And so God is going to enter his good world, this is the biblical story, and push evil, injustice, the things that hurt, the suffering, even the spark. It's in our own lives that can so quickly set to flame the entire thing. He's going to push that outside of the city into a place like Guiana. Now, this leads naturally into the third paradigm, which is a shift about the purpose of hell. The motive or purpose uh, of hell becomes one of protection rather than torture. Like God is protecting his kingdom. He's protecting the goodness that he's reestablished from the world, from the unrepentant sin that wants to tear it apart and devour it, from the unrepentant rebels who refuse to give up their destructive ways. You know? So there's a sense that God's doesn't have, God doesn't have this kind of, God's purpose is not sort of this vindictive dark side of um, got to come after you forever, you know, but there's a sense of from one angle, it's like, I'm going to protect my good kingdom from your destruction. <laughs> and then from another angle though, um, I'm going to protect it by containing your evil outside of the city, you know, like outside of the kingdom. It might be important at this moment to just give us a second to understand the nature of evil that God is protecting us from or protecting his creation from. As we look at the biblical story, what we see is that evil is a parasite, that it is aggressive, and that it is anti-creation. That it lives off of what is good, but destroys it as it lives off of it, like a cancerous cell. And so none of it can be allowed to persist inside of God's world if he is actually going to keep it safe from injustice. So therefore, the purpose of hell is to protect us, to protect God's creation from this parasitic, anti-creation, aggressive evil. Now, this leads right into the fourth and final paradigm shift that we need to go through. Final shift is just going uh, that it's not a chamber, you know? Um, and what I mean by that is I, I think a lot of people have this image where people are 
screaming, you know, like, let me out. God, I'm sorry. I'll change. I love you. I'll repel. Do whatever you want me to. And God's kind of like, oh, too bad. I've got you now. You know, there's sort of a sense that we want God and God is refusing us, that we are striving for God and God's the one refusing to be found. And the reality is that that's backwards from the gospel, right? Like the gospel is God's the one coming after us relentlessly and we're the ones running and hiding and refusing to be found. Right. In part, we've already seen that, that the whole narrative of the Bible is God seeking to reconcile heaven and earth, which means he is pursuing us. So it's not him that's refusing to welcome us or refusing to give mercy, but instead it's... The doors of hell are not locked, you know, are locked from the inside. You know, not, not from the inside. C.S. Lewis in The Voyage of the Don Treader tells this story, which Josh quotes at length in his book, and it's helpful for understanding this. The story is about a king who returns to his island. And when he gets there, he finds that his island has been overrun by a governor and his evil henchmen. And so the king, he marches back to the castle and he confronts the evil governor and he gives him a choice about whether he will stay inside the kingdom under the new king or the old king's rule, you could say, or will he refuse? But if he refuses, then he has to leave. He can't continue to exist inside the kingdom, otherwise he would continue to thwart the plans and would continue to produce injustice. But the governor, in pride, cannot imagine life in the kingdom without ruling the kingdom. And so he leaves, and he is forced into exile. The issue in this story isn't the king's mercy, it's the governor's obstinance. The king offered the governor a place at the table, a place in the kingdom. But it did mean that he had to submit and give up his rule, which is a thing the governor simply couldn't do. So he left and said no to mercy. And this, Josh is saying, is exactly what hell is. That God is inviting every single one of us, all people, into his new kingdom. Speak the word that heals this broken ground. Say. But to be a part of that kingdom means to submit to the rule and reign of the king. We have to give over our own agenda, which, as we have seen, is the reason there is so much evil and injustice in the world to begin with. We have to give over that. And if we refuse, well, then we leave and go to exile and lock the door. It's not God who refused to give us mercy. It's us who refused to accept it because we couldn't get over ourselves and our own desire to rule. What we want is autonomy from God independence where we want to live life on our own terms under our own rule rather than underneath the rule of god hell is god giving us our autonomy our independence um which even though we may prefer it that way it's not what our humanity was designed for we were designed for life with him so hell is god giving us over to our own desires our own vices but hell is also intended to protect 
which means that he gives over to those things, except they can no longer destroy or damage the goodness of his world. God is no longer going to allow us to uh, use people and use his good creation to kind of gratify or satisfy our sinful nature, you know? And that's where I, I look at how I explore how the, the, the torment of hell, uh, which I, I would distinguish from torture. I think torture is outside in God, you know, beating people over uh, with hot rods or whatever it is, you know, uh, but the torment is that we long for, we want to gratify our sinful nature by using other people, by using God's creation. And God has closed us off from being able to do that anymore. This idea is helpfully illustrated by a parable that Jesus tells of a rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man and Lazarus both die, but the rich man's experience is significantly different because... The rich man has given his identity over to his riches. Jesus paints him as a picture of the Pharisees who he's just said are lovers of money and uh, they ignore and despise the poor because they're pursuing just their own wealth and status in the community and whatever else. And so you've got this rich man who doesn't ask to get into heaven and he doesn't ask to get out like he, but he wants to drag Lazarus back down with him, you know, yeah. who was sort of this, uh, was underneath him in, in social status in, in, in this life, you know, and now he's still wanting to treat Lazarus like a slave, but you, you have this picture where uh, I think the flames and part, I, I look at a couple of things that are going on there. One of them is uh, his riches are gone. His riches have been burned up with God's judgment on the old world. And now without his riches, uh, there's language he uses that shows he's in agony, he's in torment because his riches that he's, invested his life and he's given himself to the idols of his heart or his wealth, you know, and all that's been burned up in the fire of God's judgment and leaves him in agony. And so there's this picture where on the one hand, he gets what he wants. He gets distance from God and rejection of God's good world, you know, yeah. and God's reversal is reordering of things, but uh, he gets distance from God's kingdom, but he doesn't get his riches. He doesn't get the toys that he refused to share. He doesn't get to keep Lazarus kind of under his thumb. And Jesus depicts that reality for him as being one of torment. So, where are we? Well, we've seen a lot. And we have specifically addressed four major paradigm shifts that need to happen for us to properly understand hell and the goodness of God. We've explored the story and realized that hell isn't there in the beginning. And in fact, it enters the story through us. And that God's whole mission in this world is to deal with hell, to push it out of this world, and to reconcile us to himself, our space, our world, to himself. 
We've seen that hell is not some underground torture chamber, but is actually a place that is outside of God's city, a place that is fueled and inflamed by our idolatry and injustice. And we have seen specifically that because it is inside, it is outside of the city. It is a, exists for the sake of protecting the city. That God pushes evil and injustice away from us. This anti-creation, aggressive force of the city, so that what is good, so that shalom and peace might be preserved. And finally, we've seen that this isn't some chamber, some jail cell that is locked from the outside because God refuses to give us mercy. But instead, it is locked from the inside because we refuse God's mercy. We refuse his reign. We refuse his way and choose instead to live our own way under our own reign, which in one way is something that we want. But as we've seen over and over again, it is also the same thing that leads to the power and pain and torment of hell. Now, that's definitely not all of the questions that need to be answered. And next episode, we will continue talking with Josh for one last time to have one more conversation about hell, to, to tie up the loose ends, to talk about whether it's merciful, and to talk about what we're supposed to do about all of this, how it should make us feel, and how we should respond. But hopefully, what you have seen, more than anything else, in this conversation and the last, is that hell is not incompatible with the goodness of God. The only reason it is, and the only reason we believe that, is because we don't know the story. And instead of knowing the story, we know caricatures, false ones, of God and hell. And we try to mix those together. And of course those things don't make sense. A caricature of hell of, as a barbecue where God sends people to torture them does not fit with God's mercy or goodness. But that is not the way the Bible presents hell at all. In fact, hell is our creation. Hell is the thing that we have unleashed in the world that God is seeking to rescue us and the world from. The question isn't whether God is good. The question for us that we need to wrestle with is whether we are. Now the good news is that God wants to help. Thanks for listening to episode five of The People's Theology. My name is Johnny Morrison, and this podcast is brought to you by Missio Dei Community Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more info about us or the church, check out our website at missiodayslc.com. And thanks for listening. Again, I know I keep saying this, but if you've enjoyed this podcast, if it's answered some of your questions, please share it with somebody who has similar questions or you think might have similar questions. And again, as always, please go rate us on iTunes or wherever it is that you download and listen to podcasts. For some reason, it helps. Thanks.